I think I walk up here way too fast and pressure these guys to pack up and leave unintended completely. Well, happy Mother's Day to all of you. I'm sure um, all of you will either have spent some part of this weekend with your moms, parents, or today you will spend some time with your moms and parents, uh, spending this day with them, just praising, thanking, and blessing them for their love, care, and sacrifice for you and your families. Um, your, my own view of moms have, has skyrocketed for me personally. I mean, you don't, growing up, you don't really see, I mean, I appreciate my mom growing up, but I don't remember before, like high school, I don't remember what my mom did for me really. Well, I do, but you know what I'm saying. Um, but seeing Sarin just care for Elizabeth and just sleepless nights, sacrificing her own needs for, for her. I mean, my view of moms have just skyrocketed. So I would just exhort all of you. Uh, I'm sure all the fathers will echo this statement to spend this day with your moms, to love them, to appreciate them, and to really thank God for each and every one of them. And I speak for all the leaders of Cornerstone, as Bob expressed earlier, that each mom at Cornerstone, and let's not forget the newest mom at our church, Lisa Kang, the newest mom, um, that each of you are, are very precious to us. We truly thank God for you. Um, you are our children's teachers. You model God's love to your children and to the rest of us. And with you, each mom, lies the hope of the next generation of believers. Um, G. Campbell Morgan, a, a real famous preacher from the past century, had three brothers who were also preachers. And someone asked him, well then, who's the best preacher in your family? And he got an unexpected answer. He said, my mom. She raised four preachers. She raised four pastors. Guess who we learned the Word of God from? Sound doctrine, theology, is from our mom. Hands down, she is the best preacher in the family. So even from that one illustration, one story, we can see the pivotal role that moms play in the future of the church. Future leaders are raised by moms. So again, the importance of knowing theology, knowing scripture, um, knowing doctrine for all moms. We thank God for you. And what a segue to that Martha Peace Conference that is coming up early June, um, Friday night and Saturday till 2.30 in the afternoon. Um, she's coming out here maybe once a year for a conference. And in fact, um, she won't be back until like 2004. So a key opportunity to sit on, under a godly woman. Uh, who has studied the Word of God and lived it out in our life. Godly men and women are rare, and it's a great opportunity for us. $35 for the two-day conference. If you are interested, please talk to my wife, Seren. We want to set up a um, carpool and even husbands. Uh, I'll, we'll, I'll volunteer all of us, um, volunteer them. We'll babysit, we'll drive you there, make food, whatever it takes to get you guys to go. And so we encourage everyone, all the women to go, uh, all the singles, dating, everyone. If you're a uh, female uh, gender, encourage you guys to go. Well, you know, last Mother's Day a year ago, um, we asked this question. 
what is the role of the wife and mother in the family? That was our question last year. And I don't know if you remember, but we found the answers in Proverbs 31. We did a pretty lengthy study in that chapter, and we found Solomon's beautiful description of a godly wife, a godly mother. And in fact, this past week, I was browsing through our tape catalog online, and I found that link, and I spent, my, spent about an hour listening to that sermon, and I was so blessed and challenged by the exposition of God's Word, and just Solomon's picture of this godly wife, and I was really convicted in my own heart to really serve my wife and help her in her pursuit of Christ and pursuit of her role. Well, today I want to ask the question, what is the role of women in the church? Last year was the role of the wife and mother in a family. Today's question is, what is the role of women in the church? And today we will seek our answer on this Mother's Day from Titus chapter 2. It will be a part one of a two-part, at least a two-part study in Titus chapter 2 verses 1 through 8. It is my first time studying through Titus 2. Um, read many chapters on it. Heard a few sermons on it, but it was my first time studying through Proverbs 31 last year. Likewise, my first time studying through Titus 2, and already I've been tremendously blessed, and I'll share those blessings with you. Now, before we get to the text, a brief background of this epistle. Um, the author is the Apostle Paul. In verse 1, he calls Titus his true son in the faith, and Titus is left behind in the island of Crete. There are churches there. And in verse 5, Paul reminds Titus why he was left behind. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. God had established some churches there, but these churches were young in the faith. They were just birthed, and therefore they had some significant needs. They needed spiritual guidance, spiritual direction. They needed instruction from the Word of God. Believers there needed to mature in the faith. They needed to be protected from false teachers and false teaching. And they needed spiritually mature leaders in the church. They needed elders. So Paul reminds Titus, I left you there to finish what we started, meaning the strengthening of the church, founding of the church, and secondly, to appoint elders, to appoint leaders in this church. So Paul is writing this epistle to encourage Titus in his work and also give him instructions, reminders on the task that was given to him by the apostle. Now this letter is intended for Titus, but not just solely for him. This letter was to be read publicly in the churches, so that the churches would know why Titus is doing what he's doing in the churches of Christ. Now if you look at chapter 1, you will note that the focus of chapter 1 is the leadership of the church. Leadership of the church. Now, just by the placement of this uh, in, uh, in the epistle denotes for us the priority, the importance of having high standards for leadership in the church. Paul places great premium on making sure that 
church leaders are up to the up to par with the standards of God. That churches must have high standards for leadership. And thus Paul gives a list of the distinguishing traits of a man that uniquely qualify him to serve as an elder of a church. He is to be a man of high Christian standard, high Christian caliber. This list parallels the one given in given to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So he begins by talking about leaders, and then in chapter 2 he moves towards the people. From pastors to people, to leaders to laity, to elders, from elders to everybody else. He turns attention from leaders now to rest of the church. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, we see four C's, in Apostle Paul, Apostle's writings to Titus, four C's. Paul contrasts Titus with the false teachers. Paul commands Titus and the churches in the island of Crete. Paul gives his conclusion, meaning Paul gives the purpose of his writing. And fourthly, Paul gives the character that believers are to adorn in their lives as they follow Christ. Four C's. Contrast. Commands conclusion, and character. And today, we will get through the first three. Next week, we'll deal with the character. We're gonna, I'm going to have a heart-to-heart talk with all of you next week. And I think Mike loves off. Maybe even take, take off my tie next week. Come in, uh, maybe uh, it's a t-shirt, maybe tank tops, and have a heart-to-heart talk. Uh, maybe not tank tops, but <laughs> heart-to-heart talk about just the character that Christians are to adorn in the church of Christ. And Paul gets specific. Paul gets detailed. He's not just outlining high theology and doctrine. He goes to people's lives and points out things that need to be obeyed, that must be obeyed, and that is next week. But this week, I got my tie on still, we'll deal with the contrast, the commands, and the conclusions. Conclusion. Well, let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. And start by considering the contrast that Paul makes in verse 1. Paul starts in verse 1, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Let's consider the first four words, but as for you. Note the first word, but. It's a conjunction that contrasts his previous statement with Titus. He was referring to someone else, some other people, and he says, But as for you, Titus, You need to be different. He contrasts Titus with this group of people. Who are these uh, people? Verse 16, they are false teachers in the church. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good works. Paul uses some strong adjectives in verse 16. He says that these men are detestable, abominable. It literally means object of disgust. They are disgusting. What, who they are and what they're doing is abhorrent. There is a visceral response to these men. It is one of disgust. They are also disobedient. The Greek word here denotes someone who is unpersuadable. 
They're unwilling to hear nor obey. It's a sense where Paul met with these men, met with these people, dialogued with them from the Word of God, and they are disobedient. They don't want to listen to truth. They don't even want to, to hear the Word of God. They're, they're thoroughly unpersuadable. And therefore, Paul says, they are unfit for any good work. They are literally un, they are literally worthless for any good work. Meaning, they bring absolutely zero benefit to the church. They're worthless. No benefit. No good for good works. Unfit in verse 16 is the word adakimas. The word that we studied in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. They are, they are tested and found useless. The word adakimas was used in construction. When they were constructing a building, they had a stone that was tested and they found a serious flaw. They would scratch on the stone a capital A. Meaning adakimas, rejected, worthless, unfit for this building, and they would cast it aside. And they would scratch that big A on that stone so that any construction worker would come in and try to pick up that stone used for construction. He would know, oh, it's got a big capital A, it's unfit, it's worthless, it's not to be used for this building, and they would cast it aside. Paul uses that term to describe these false teachers. They are cast aside, they're rejected, they're unfit for the work of God. In a word, they are useless. Now why? Why are these men, why are these teachers useless? Because they teach things they ought not teach. Chapter 1 describes them as teaching deceptive lies. They are caught up in myths. They are propping human commandments as equal to the commandments of God and binding them on people. And the ultimate result is they are causing God's people to go astray towards Satan. Therefore, they are useless men. He's done talking about them. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he turns to his true son in the faith, and he says, but as for you, Titus, he contrasts Titus with all these men, these detestable, disobedient, and worthless men. But you, Titus, you are to be different. They speak lies. They speak man-made commands. They're talking about myths that benefit no one. But as for you, you are to teach what accords with sound doctrine. You are to teach, you are to speak what accords with sound doctrine. Now, the interesting word here is teach. And all the translators, they make an interpretive decision here. And most translations have the word teach. But the Greek word here is not didaskalio, which is the word for teach. The Greek word here is not keruso, which is preach. The word that Paul uses is laleo, which is simply speak. Paul commands Timothy, speak what accords with sound doctrine. So what Paul is saying is beyond the pulpit. He wants to give Titus an idea that ministry is not confined to Sunday mornings. Ministry is not confined to Tuesday evenings at flock. Ministry is not limited to some official position. That everything you say, you speak, you should be constantly exhorting the saints, teaching the saints to live according to the word of God. To teach 
life, a lifestyle that accords with sound doctrine. Constantly speaking, constantly teaching, exhorting, encouraging, all the time, not just on Sunday mornings. And I see um, a real insight into, into true Christian ministry. I see an insight into a true spiritual leader, where he is a leader all the time. He's speaking truth all the time. His lifestyle, his life revolves around exhorting saints to live by the word of God. They are always exhorting, always encouraging, explaining and teaching the Word of God. Scripture and, and exhorting people to live by the Word of God is constantly on their lips. Look again in verse 1. Now this is very important. Let me make it clear what he is not saying. He is not saying, speak sound doctrine. He's not saying, hey, Titus, teach unconditional election, lordship, salvation, and inerrancy of scripture. That is not what what Paul is saying here whatsoever. He covered that in chapter 1, verse 9. How an elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy word. He must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, rebuke those who contradict it. He's talked about that. In chapter 2, verse 1, what he's saying now is, you must speak the things which are properly to be associated with sound doctrine. He's talking about life. And the rest of chapter 2 bears that out. Paul is not talking high theology. He's talking about men being sober, women not getting drunk on wine, women keep being workers at home, older men being self-controlled. He's talking about right life. Teach the practical requirements for everyday life that suits, that's consistent, that accords with right doctrine, that literally, I think NASB or NIV translated, fits right doctrine. There is only one kind of life that fits into right doctrine. Only one kind of life. So you must teach people to conform to this life so that their life will fit the sound doctrine that they profess to hold. Paul's thinking is, what, what's the purpose? What's the use of right doctrine if people don't live it out? What's the benefit of sound doctrine? What's the benefit of the Word of God if Christians undermine that truth by errant, compromised, hypocritical living? Right. All that does is it promotes hypocrisy. When you allow this to occur in the church, when you just turn a blind eye to people blatantly living inconsistent to the Word of God, and you just go back behind the pulpit week after we just teach high doctrine. And you ignore just the blatant compromises that are being occurring in the church. Paul says, Titus, what's the purpose of that? That's not what I'm commanding you. You need to get to where the rubber meets the road. That is, where the doctrine is flushed out and all the nitty-gritties of a person's life, you need to get involved and speak, exhort, encourage, teach people to live according to the Word of God. Look at verse 1. That word accords with sound doctrine. The word accord, the word here is prepo. It, It means consistent. It means proper. It means what fits calling them to, calling Titus to teach them to have a life that fits with doctrine. To teach character, to teach habits, to teach attitudes, 
that are consistent with the Word of God. Spiritual ministers, spiritual leaders are not just to teach the Word and I'm out of here. Right. Here's the truth. Right. I exposit it and my responsibility is done. You guys deal with it. You guys apply it. I'm not responsible. That's not a true spiritual minister of God. In fact, that's not what Christ commanded, right? In Matthew 28, verse 19, our Lord's command was, Teach them, what? <laughs> teach them what? You guys know? Right? One more time, everyone. Just saying different words here. <laughs> teach them to obey. Different versions, it's okay. Right? Teach them to obey. Christ's instruction was, Hey guys, you go out there and you don't just teach the truth, you teach them to obey the truth. And that's exactly what Apostle Paul did. Romans, people think it's a theological treatise, and that it is, but only for first 11 chapters. Starting with chapter 12, what does he do? He applies that. He teaches people to obey the theology of 11 chapters of Romans. Same thing with Ephesians, three grand chapters of theology, and then he spends three chapters applying that to people's lives, to slaves, to masters, to children, to fathers, mothers, husbands and wives. Right? To every category of a person's life, he applies that. Same thing in Philippians, three chapters of theology with, and three chapters of application. Why did Paul do that? Because he understands that our Lord wants the church to know the truth and to live it. God wants the church to be pure in doctrine and to pure, be pure in life. Calling us to be doers of the word. James 1.22 Do not merely listen to the word. And so deceive yourself. Hey, I have right doctrine. I know sound teaching. And if you don't live it out, you're just deceiving yourself. We are to do what it says. This verse 1 is a command binding upon all spiritual leaders in the church. Where the spiritual shepherd takes responsibility for people's lives. Right. See, professors don't do that. I mean, we're in this Western academic mindset where you know you go to school and professor you get a C a professor's like hey I did my part I taught you the truth you get a C it's not my problem you flunk my class you flunk out of school that's not my problem and I think we we bring that kind of mentality into the church where all we need to do is just teach the truth and if people flunk hey that's their responsibility no not a true spiritual leader a true spiritual shepherd we are commanded by god to teach sound doctrine and shepherd people to obey sound doctrine i, I personally exhort all the flock shepherds in our flock ministry even the small group leaders but specifically flock shepherds we need to get down and dirty with our people we need to Open our lives up, be vulnerable, share our strengths and weaknesses. You know, put our heart out there and get into the nitty-gritty with our people. Because our people need to obey the Word of God. In those areas. In those areas where it's tough, where it's politically incorrect, that is counterintuitive even, that goes against the grain of our society. That's where our people need to obey. That's where we need to shine as lights. As spiritual shepherds, we need to meddle in people's lives. 
We need to get into people's kitchens. We need to maybe make some home visitations, right? That's big in the last generation of churches, right? Where pastors will knock on your door and go into your house and look around like your backyard, open your garage, look at your, you know, refrigerator. And like, now we're not like that. Hey, stay out of my house. Lock the doors. The pastor's coming, you know? Like, Get, we got to clean up. He's coming. Or maybe we need to start doing that instead of meeting at a neutral place like Starbucks or something. Hey, I want to meet you in your bedroom. I want to see what's on your walls. I want to see what you're listening to. I want to see what preset buttons are on your radio. Right? I want to see what you're reading. We need to, to ask them hard questions. Get involved in their lives. We are not to teach from a distance. Where our ministry is just Tuesday, 7.30 to 9.30, and I just teach, and if I teach, my job is done. You know, wow, that was a great teaching. Man, exegesis, exposition, high theology, wow, I did my part. That is not the command that God gives to true spiritual shepherds. If you love the Word, If you love God's people, you will willingly get involved in people's lives and not deal just with doctrine, but deal with life. There should be a great desire upon that. I think really that is one of the strengths of Cornerstone. I really believe that. We have leaders that have increasingly that heart to shepherd our people. We had a person once, the person grew up, Pretty much in church, all the person's life. I gotta be, make sure it's gender, gender neutral. And we're telling that person, hey, we wanna shepherd you. And the person was blown away. The person never had that kind of, like, desire of a leader to shepherd that person's heart. But that's, that should be common. That should be expected. That should, that is the ministry of the church. Not only are we to teach and shepherd our people, meddle in their lives, but when it comes down to it, we need to even exhort them and rebuke them. Right? We need to do some like, confrontational ministry. Go down to verse 15 of chapter 2. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And he, he bracketed this here in, Tim, in Titus chapter 2. Verse 1 and 15, he's like sandwiching it, right? Say these things, and he closes it by these practical things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The word exhort is positive. It's the idea of coming alongside a person, urging, encouraging, compelling, admonishing in a positive way. It's the idea of a coach. Basketball, football, track coach. Coming along, come on, you need to do this. You have to obey. you got to follow. Come on. Just grin and bear it. It's a little bit longer. And you're exhorting that person to hold on. And you're longer. Obey, obey more. It's that kind of exhortation that Paul is calling Titus to. When they don't obey, here's a negative approach. Rebuke them. Rebuke them. It's, it's the idea of confronting someone face to face with the purpose of convicting them of their sin. Paul is saying to all spiritual leaders, to Titus and all of us, that you have a personal responsibility, whether in the pulpit or in the kitchen, 
whether public at church or private in someone's home, whether to a large group or to a single person, always be speaking about these standards of holy living. Exhort them. If they reject you, rebuke them. They refuse to obey, rebuke them. And then he ends verse 15 by saying, with all authority. With all authority. What authority? Is it the authority of uh, Titus's office? Is it authority of Titus's association? He knows Paul. Is it the authority of some kind of experience or ability? No. The authority is the Word of God. That's the only authority. Right. I mean, Titus, who died and made you king? I mean, who gave you the right, the authority to meddle in people's lives? What right do you have <coughs> to say and speak these things? What right? The Word of God. Word of God grants authority. That's what the Word of God says. Then he adds in verse 15, let no one disregard you. It's a two, two-fold command. It's a command to Titus, meaning it's a command to all spiritual leaders. Let no one paraphernal. It's a compound word. Para is to circumvent, circumference, phernal, to think. Let no one think around you, meaning let no one look down on you. Let no one hear you and say, ah, that old man's had it. Oh, that guy, that's just his opinion. Oh, he's being legalistic. Oh, there he goes in his rant and raving again. I'm not even going to listen. I'm just going to, in one year, out one year, Paul is telling let no one do that. Don't let anyone disregard you, despise you, look down on you. He's saying, Titus, don't back down. Paul's the same thing to Timothy. But for Timothy, it was with his age, not his teaching. People were looking down on him because of his age. Let no one paraphernalia you because of your age. Look down on you because you're young. But set an example. Same thing to Titus. Let no one disregard you. Secondly, because it was to be read in the churches at Crete, it's a command to the churches to not disregard Titus' teaching. To not look down upon Titus. To not circumvent to, to justify or excuse your behavior and go around Titus' teaching. Because authority is the word of God. Scripture is not a book of suggestions. It is not a book of insights or ideas. It is ultimately a book of commands. I mean, it is really a warning to any Christian who is entertaining thoughts of ignoring word, the word of God that comes from spiritual leaders. In Luke chapter 10, verse 16, our Lord says, Those who listen to you, those who listen to you, listen to me. Those who reject you, reject me, and rejects the one who sent me. Our Lord says, you're going in my place. And when someone rejects the teaching of the word of God through a true spiritual leader, they're not ultimately rejecting man. They're not rejecting his ideas. They're rejecting Jesus Christ. They're rejecting God Himself. So that was a contrast. Paul saying, Titus, here are these false teachers. They're worthless, detestable, disobedient. But you, you are to be different. How? By speaking these things that accord to sound doctrine. 
exhorting them, rebuking them, and not allowing people to disregard you. Right? And that was a command to teach for Titus to speak these things. It's not an option, but it's a command that Paul gave to Titus to command to teach these things, to say these things. Well, thirdly, let's go to the conclusion. The purpose of these commands. In chapter 2, 1 through 8, Paul gives a lot of detailed instructions to older men, younger, younger men, older women, younger women. Sprinkled through chapter 2, he gives the reason for these instructions, the purpose of instructions. Paul says that it is imperative that Christians live lives that are consistent with sound doctrine. It is imper- it's a must that Christians obey the word of God. Why? Because wrong lives have grave consequences. Grave consequences. If we don't live lives worthy of God's word, a negative impact is not just to ourselves but to others. Negative implications, ramifications to those who are watching us. Look at three verses with me. We'll look at verses 5, 8, and 10. Here in this section, we find three purpose clauses in this chapter. Look at verse 5. All of this matter of behavior ends in verse 5, and Paul says, in order that the word of God may not be reviled. Christians are to live right lives. Why? So that the word of God may not be dishonored, maligned, blasphemed. The compelling issue is not us, but it's the word of God. That's what holy living produces. That is what unholy living produces. It causes the world to disdain, reject, disregard, mock, and blaspheme the Word of God. In other words, how we live will directly determine how people feel about the Word of God. Isn't that amazing? If a Christian wife is not what she ought to be, if a Christian young man who is, is not what he ought to be, a Christian older man, Christian older woman is not what... They ought to be. The person that gets blasphemed and maligned is not the people, but it's God's word. In this relativistic, non-judgmental world, they'll say, yeah, you know, we're all sinners. But then they'll denigrate the word of God. They'll blaspheme the word of God. The world doesn't judge us by our theology. They couldn't care less. But the world judges us by our behavior. Do you guys get that? The world doesn't see high view of God. They don't care about our view of election and scripture and deity of Christ. What they will judge is our behavior, is our lives. And they judge the validity of the scripture by our behavior. If our lives are true, their conclusion is scripture must be true. If our lives are false, then they'll say the word of God is false. There are some powerful illustrations of this in the Old Testament. 
In 2 Samuel 12, we all know this story. David was in the roof of his kingdom, in his palace. If you'll turn there, please. 2 Samuel 12. And he sees a young maiden, young woman, uh, taking a bath. He lusts after her, a married woman. He commits adultery with her. He, find, he gets Uriah to go into war, commands the leaders to, at the heat of battle, to leave, abandon him in the front line, thus murdering Uriah. Nathan comes and he confronts David, saying those words, You are the man. Talk about a blind spot. He was angry at this man who stole a sheep from a poor man and in righteousness condemned him. This man deserves to die. As sure as I live, sure as I rule this kingdom, this man will not live. Nathan says, man, look at that plank of your own eye, David. It's you. You're the one. In verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Here is the forgiveness of sin. Here is forgiveness. But verse 14, However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, therefore the child that is to be born to you will surely die. David, God will forgive you of your sin. But you, your sin made the Gentiles, the unbelievers, it's causing them to blaspheme God. God's name is dishonored because of your sin, David. And that is what happens to us. When we sin, when we live compromised worldly lives, the world responds how? By blaspheming the Lord and His Word. They mock it. They don't necessarily judge us, revile us, right? They are tolerant, they are loving, they are relativists, but they have no problem judging the Word of God, condemning Scripture at every opportunity when Christians do not live by the Word. Turn to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. Here's another instance of this. Verse 17, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols which, with which they defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of His land. But I had concern for my holy name, for which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. So you get the picture? Here are the Israelites sinning in the land of Israel. God is angry at them. God pours out His wrath, scatters them through all these other nations. And what are they doing? They're sinning in these other nations. And these Gentiles see, quote-unquote, the people of God. 
see it, the way they behave, the way they sin, their immorality, their idolatry. And they blaspheme the word of God. They, they dishonor God. If God's people are this way, then their God must be powerless. Their God is not true. Romans 2.24, same thing in the New Testament. Paul is talking to Jews of his time and he says, you would teach not to steal, do you steal? You would teach not to commit idolatry, do you commit idolatry? As it is stated in verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The The Jewish people were to be a light to the Gentiles, leading people to God. But instead... God's name was being blasphemed, was being denigrated because of their lives. That is why our Lord said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. See, when we do good works, when we live right lives, people glorify God. When we sin, people blaspheme God. It is imperative that we obey Scripture, that we live right lives for the glory and honor of God. Back to Titus 2. Here we see the second purpose clause in this uh, passage. I think verse 8 really um, gives us the heart of what Paul is saying. Verse 8, towards the end, Paul says, so that an opponent may be put to shame, that they might have nothing evil to say about us. Here is the issue again. Here is the issue. They're examining us. They're scrutinizing us. Non-believing family members, co-workers, friends, they're acting like they're not watching, but they are. They're scrutinizing us to see if we are living consistent with the Word of God. And they love it when Christians scandalize their faith. That's why it's all over the news. When a Christian leader falls, page one, bold print. Because the world loves nothing better when a Christian falls. Because they hate God and they hate the Word of God. And every opportunity, they will take and relish and revel when a Christian falls, a Christian leader falls. Well, Paul says, that's not what you want. You want the exact opposite. You want them to be shamed. The Greek word literally means to blush. When, you, when you're embarrassed, you start to blush. You want to make them red-faced. Because they can't find anything to criticize. And that's evangelism here. This is the way you reach the world. We reach the world through our lives, undergirding the Word of God, by our virtue, godliness, holiness, purity of life. It it shuts their mouth. They can't say anything. They look at our lives and they have to say, Christianity is powerful and you are genuine, you're living it out because there's, there's nothing to criticize in your walk. Nothing evil to say about us. You know, I have this illustration here. I put it in brackets. I don't know if I, were to share it, if, I was, if I wanted to share it or not. I was going to ask my wife, but I forgot. So 
I don't know. I'm always wary of sharing illustrations that deal with me. But, you know, here I go. I mean, you know, my sister is a non-Christian. Um, her, her husband is a lawyer, non-Christian. They're atheists. They are card-carrying members of ACLU. They are politically, theologically, spiritually on the opposite end of the spectrum as us. When we get together for dinner, we talk about Lakers and the weather. That's about it. Because anything else... Right, it's confrontation. Well, we've, you know, we've spent a lot of time with them over the years, four or five years now. They have two daughters. We have Elizabeth. You know, we spent a lot of time. We we met them twice in the past two weeks, and we had no idea how they truly felt about us. I know they disagree with us scripturally. They disagree with us how we, you know, relate to one another, roles in the family, how we raise Elizabeth. Right? I mean, they disagree. We know that. But about a few months ago, they told us they wrote a will out for their family, and if anything happens to them, they want us to raise their children. Like, we're blown away. What? Aren't you guys atheists? And you know, if we have your children, we're going to just start on Genesis 1, when the kingdom come, and just indoctrinate them with Scripture, and just teach them total depravity, and discipline them every opportunity we get. I mean, literally, every opportunity we get, I'm going to. But they said... They said to my wife, you know, you guys will probably do a better job of parenting than we would. Blown away. So it, it clicked all those years they were watching us to see if there's any inconsistency. Is there any compromise? Is there any sin? Right? They were watching us. We had no idea. But by the grace of God, by God's grace, right? and it shows what their heart is, unbelievers are watching you they want nothing better for you to sin. I mean, that, that just gives them weapons, arsenal, for their attack against Christianity, attack against the Word of God. Paul says you need to live right lives so that they might be shamed and they might have nothing evil to say about us. And then finally, verse 10, the final purpose. says, We are to adorn in order that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. The first two purposes are negative. This is the positive one. Verse 5, the word of God is not malign. Verse 8, that they might, nothing bad to say about us. Here is verse 10, the positive. We want to adorn a doctrine of God that He is our Savior in every respect. This is our, the primary point, such a powerful point that we are to wear the doctrine of God by our lives. We wear God in our lives. And what do we, what doctrine of God is highlighted by our obedience? is that He is our Savior. And what did God save us from? From sin. So when we live holy lives, it highlights God's saving nature, God's merciful, gracious nature, that we are living holy lives because He saved us from sin. Saved us from sin. We're trying to get them to understand that God is here to save them. And how do we do that? By adorning God in our lives. That word adorn is great. It's from a Greek word, cosmeo, from the word we get cosmetic. It means to make something beautiful. We're to put the cosmetic of God on us. 
so they might see that God is our Savior, that God saves from sin. Do we see what's at stake here? Do we see what's at stake here? Like every single Christian here, souls are hanging in the balance. God's word, God's testimony, the gospel hangs in the balance by your life. And because if you disobey and live sinful lives, then the implications, the ramifications are tremendous. Grave consequences. Do you understand that? Maybe some of us don't understand. That is why so many live Shallow Christian lives, really like unthinking, careless Christian lives, playing with sin, toying with temptation. It must be because they don't understand the gravity of right living, the seriousness of the need for us to live right lives for God and man. Well, just three final thoughts for all of us here. First of all, what is the Word of God to you, really? Is Scripture your authority? I mean, does your heart melt because of the Word of God? Does your heart break? Do you view the Word of God as a list of counsel or guides, insights, you take it or leave it? Really, the ultimate authority is you, and you dictate what part is the Word of God, and you live according to your, you're the final arbiter of, truth and error and you live according to your own views or is the word of God the authority and it's an imperative it's a must to live according to the word of God secondly do you see the seriousness of your Christian life that lives hang in the balance Man, as a preacher, I don't know whether I should say some things or not. So here, I don't know if I should say this or not. But, I mean, if you saw the seriousness of it, you would do either one or two things. You would step up in your Christian walk. Or, I don't know if I should say this or not. I wrestled all the way here. Or, I would take myself out. I would not profess to be a Christian. Because understand the gravity of what's at stake. If I'm playing ball as an important game and I'm a detriment to my team, man, I would have, I don't know, you know, coach, take me out. Right? I'm hurting the team here. We're losing because of me. Take me out of the game. Sit me on the bench. Don't let me ever play again. Or I'll, let me practice and I'll get back on later. Right? I think you should, you should, you ought to say, you know what? I'm going to live by the word of God. But if you're unwilling that I think you should say, you know what, i got to stop professing to be a Christian. I can't say again that I'm a follower of Christ. You should take yourself out of the game and repent and cry out to God that God might work in your life so that you might honor Him because of the serious consequences. Because you've got to ask, is Christianity a joke to your parents because of you? To your friends, to your family, to your brothers and sisters, is Cornerstone Bible Church a big just you know, sham? Doctrine, gospel, Christianity, it's all a joke because they see your life at home. They see your life when no one is watching. They see your life when the elders aren't looking or the spiritual leaders don't know. Is Christianity a joke to them? Is God's word denigrated, dishonored? Is God seen as less than beautiful 
because of the ugliness of your Christian life. We all need to ask ourselves these questions today. And I, I, I say that with the heart that we, should, that we would resolve to recommit to living according to the standards given to us in Scripture so that God might be honored in our lives. Let's pray. Well, as um, as a pastor, Lord, I can somewhat sense the heart of Paul, the urgency, the immediacy, the priority he he sensed in the churches at Crete to obey the Word of God, not just know truth. I sense the burden he felt in trying to get these Christians to live by the standards of Scripture in their personal lives, in their families, in the private areas of their lives. Lord, that burden is shared by all true Christians here and is shared by all ministers, all true leaders at church. Lord, help us to see our own blind spot. Are we like David, condemning a man because he sold a sheep or he stole a sheep and yet he's blind to his own sin, his own hypocrisy, of adultery and murder. I know every single one of us here, we have that blind spot. We have this plank in our eye, and, but we're fixated in the, in the speck of our brother's eye. Lord, may the mirror of God's word, it's always so gentle and tender, but may it speak to us with honesty as we consider the word of God and as we see ourselves in the mirror of God's word. And may we have the right response, designed to obey, designed to repent. So that through our lives, Lord, that you might be honored in our family, among our friends, co-workers, even among people that we have just really shallow relationships with, they will see the reality of the gospel by our lives and will glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.